Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing in a sermon series that we've been in uh, throughout the fall on the book of Galatians. Uh, This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he himself had founded about three years earlier. And having founded that church on the message that's at the heart of Christianity, the message of salvation by grace alone, the power of God's grace to make us new and alive, He'd seen this church uh, begin to wander away from that message over the course of three short years. And so he writes this letter to call them back to the simple and powerful center of the Christian faith, God's grace for sinners. And he writes to us uh, through the centuries because we too need to be called back uh, to the core and central message of God's grace. And so, uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's Word together? Our reading today is Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I again am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thanks, Haley. You can be seated. Well, this past week, uh, I was, uh, had the real great joy, uh, me and together with the uh, staff of Christ Church in town, went up to a conference in Nashville, which was a, a tremendously uh, relaxing and renewing conference. It was a great time. And uh, in the middle of this conference, uh, Matt, our trusty worship leader, and I uh, endured one of the more interesting Uber rides of my life. We had uh, finished the evening session of this conference, and we got, we called an Uber uh, to get to another thing, and so we got in the Uber, and as soon as we opened the doors, it was like we had opened the doors to a disco. The music was going. He had LED lights everywhere that were flashing in my eyes. Um, it, it was overwhelming. 
uh, loud music, and so Matt and I sit in the back with the music and the lights and all of it all around us, and we were hoping to have a discussion about uh, the, the, the talk that we had just heard, the lecture we had just listened to, which was given by uh, a woman uh, who did a wonderful job. And as we were sitting there talking to each other, we were talking, you know, I thought this part of what she said was really good, and I had trouble understanding this part. I think she could have been clearer here. And just then, our faithful Uber guide turns down the music, and he says, hey, I wonder if I might offer some advice, if I could be of help to you. Go ahead. It sounds like you guys are talking about a lady. Uh, It sounds like maybe she is someone who one or both of you is interested in. And that you're having trouble understanding how to get through to her. Brother, I admire your confidence, um, but that's not. That's not what we're talking about at all. And before we could really get too far into what we're actually talking about, so let me ask you a question, guys. Have you ever read the book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus? And I had to confess, no, I've not read that book. He says, well, actually, neither have I. But... (laughs) Somebody, uh, a lady friend of mine, was explaining a part of it to me, and he went on to give us a synopsis of part of the book. So here's a guy trying terribly uh, to interpret events that he misunderstood in light of a book that he had not read, um, and shockingly doing a bad job of it. But that is uh, how our lives are so often. Right? Events that we don't quite understand happen to us all the time. It can seem like we're wandering in this world and things are happening. We experience joys or we experience sorrows. Sometimes suffering hits us uh, from the blind side. We love, we lose. It can seem like this disconnected series of events. And we're looking for a story that helps us to make sense, that helps us to order these events and to give some shape to our lives. And so often those who seek to give us advice uh, seem like uh, that Uber driver, barely understanding, barely offering any kind of ordering story. Well, in Galatians 4, Paul is writing to a church that has lost its way. He's writing to a church that is wandering through this life, having lost uh, the storyline of the gospel, the central story of their lives. And while Paul does understand the events that they've gone through, and he understands the story that orders their lives. And so he offers in this passage to help them, and by extension to help us, to find the story uh, that gives order to our lives. And to do that for these these early struggling Christians, he goes back uh, to the oldest and most formative story in Israel's history the story through which they interpreted much of the rest of their lives. And that's the story of the Exodus, right? You remember the story of God uh, coming to his people, seeing them in their slavery in Egypt, intervening by his love to set them free from slavery, to set them out on a journey towards a promised land that he promised that he would lead them to, to have a home of their own. And then in the middle, between their being set free and their finding the promised land, they wandered. They wandered through the wilderness. If, you, if, you, if your study Bible has a map in the back of it, you can see just a curly cue curly line through the North African desert that represents the way that the Israelites spent about 40 years of their lives. They're not out of Egypt uh, but for a few days before they first say, God, you've set us free, but you've led us out into this desert to die. 
You've led us here to die of hunger and thirst. Maybe we should go back. Back to Egypt where while, yes, we were slaves, at least we were well-fed. Let's go back. You see the language of the Exodus all through this story when Paul talks to them about wanting to return again to their slavery. Returning again to the false gods that kept them prisoners. And so what he's saying to this early church and what he's saying to us is that your story follows essentially those same markers, right? We're saved uh, by an event in our past, God's miraculous intervention through Jesus. He makes promises to us that he will finish and complete our salvation. Our story has a beginning and an end, but the middle is the hard part. The middle is the part where we doubt and we wander. It's the part where sometimes we want to go back to our old way of life. In the middle, uh, it can be hard to keep our bearings and to remember where we're going. Paul starts in verse 8 here. He says, Formerly, in your past, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul here is, is accurately describing the Galatians' life before they heard the message of the gospel. They were uh, Greek pagans who worshipped many gods. And what he's saying is that when you serve these other gods, you are a slave to them. So it's a literal description of the Galatians' life, but it's also a pretty sweeping diagnosis of human life apart from the knowledge of the true God. That all of human life, prior to knowing uh, the true God in Christ, is marked by worshiping things that are not gods. Right? Whether you have ever, uh, like these Galatian Christians would have, actually bowed down to an idol, a physical representation of, of a God that Paul says here is no God at all, our lives are marked by serving things that are not God, as though they were our functional God. Whatever it is that you seek most highly, love most deeply, uh, is for you your functional God, and it makes a slave out of you. Is Bob Dylan uh, once saying, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? Those things in our lives that we serve become our gods. He says that they may call you doctor or they may call you chief, uh, but you're going to have to serve somebody. In your life, you will find some person, some object, some good that you serve. The novelist David Foster Wallace uh, put it this way at a college graduation in 2005. Wallace said, Because here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap for real meaning in life, you will never have enough, never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Right? What he's saying is that thing that you elevate to the position 
of you, the thing you've got to have, the thing that you find purpose and meaning and hope in, will fail you. It will enslave you. It'll lead you to believe that you can't ever have enough of it. And then it will let you down. And so we end up enslaved to these other gods that are not gods. And Paul tells us that the only way that a human heart can ever be set free from that hamster wheel of serving other gods, seeking fulfillment in other things, the only way that we can ever find real freedom from that slavery is to know the real God. It's to know the true God. As he says in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, right, what changed their life was coming to know the true God. And in so many ways, knowing God was the central drive of Paul's calling. His calling was to help people to know God. There's that famous scene where where Paul arrives to Athens, the city of many of the Greek gods. And he looks and he sees there what's, what's called the temple to the unknown God. They had all of these gods, but just in case there was a God that they weren't sacrificing to, just in case there was a God that they weren't worshiping, they made a temple to him so they could just cover their extra bases and worship the unknown God. And Paul says, look, you've got a temple here to an unknown God, but I've come so that you can know him. The belief that God is not a God that you have to guess at, that you have to wonder about, that you have to try to appease, but he's a God that you can know. And of course, the knowing that Paul was after is not a mere intellectual knowing. It's not a knowing about God, but it's a real personal, relational knowing of God that gives life. So verse 9, you've come to know God. And then I love this. I love when Paul seems to stop himself. You've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. Because what Paul's saying here is he catches himself, as he says, as important it is, is that, as important as it is that you know God, he's not denigrating that, right? He was a, a teacher of the true God. He says, as important it is that you know God, what's far more important is that God knows you. Right? What's far more important is not your beliefs or your ideas about God, but that God knows you. He knows who you are. He knows your struggles, and he knows your sins, and he knows your sufferings and your wanderings. And that is where our hope is found. Right? Not that we're going to find our way to God, but that God knows us and that he's found his way to us in Jesus. God knows you. He knows us. This is one of the central themes of the Bible. The first time in the Bible that a human being names God, it comes from an unlikely person. It's from a foreign woman named Hagar, who's been sent out by Abraham, the one who is to be the founder of Israel, the great man of faith. He abandons her and her son, and they wander into the wilderness to die. And then God shows up. And he cares for her and he ministers to her. And she says of him, you are the God who sees me. When everybody else ignores me, when everybody else overlooks me, when I feel like the pain and struggle of my life is unseen in this world, you are the God who sees me and you know me and you pursue me and you found me here. Later on in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, while God's people seem to be struggling under slavery in Egypt, without hope under the thumb of the most powerful empire in the world. God calls Moses, and what does he say in Exodus 3? He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. 
and I have come down to deliver them. God sees us, and he sees you. He sees that part of your life that you think's blocked out to everyone else. He sees the tears that you cry in secret. He sees the thoughts that keep you up at night. He sees you, and he knows you. What does God see when he sees you? Right? It'd be easy to believe that what God sees when he sees us is idolatry. That what he sees when he sees us is our sin, right? He's already said that you were slaves to other gods, right? You were worshiping gods other than the true God. You were wandering away from your God and Father. But when God sees you, he sees you not as objects of his wrath, but objects of his affection. When he sees you, he sees his children, his wayward children, that he loves so deeply that he was willing to send his son to die on the cross so that you could know him, so that you could come to know the God who knows you and to see the God who sees you, so that you could come into a real and living and vital relationship with God. That's what God sees when he sees you. He sees his beloved. He sees the one that he loves. You've heard, perhaps it said, uh, I forget who I first heard this from, I, think, I assume it was Tim Keller, uh, said that, God loves you so much that Jesus was willing to die. But you were so broken, so scarred by sin that Jesus had to die. Right? Even in the midst of that level of sin and brokenness, the Son, the Son of God, still gave his life for you. God knows you, and he loves you in spite of everything that he knows about you. And he sent his Son to lay down his life with you in mind. Eugene Peterson writes this, He says, all the persons of faith that I know are sinners, doubters, and uneven performers. I love those words. We are sinners, we are doubters, and we are uneven performers. We are secure not because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure of us. Right? Not because we're sure of ourselves. Your confidence in Christ doesn't come from being sure of yourself. It doesn't come from believing in your own, the strength of your own faith, the power of your own obedience, the strength of your own devotion. It comes not because we're sure of ourselves, but because we're sure that God is sure of us. God sees you, and he knows you, and he holds you. And so like the Israelites, we are set free from our captives, set free from these captors of the captivity of other gods, set free to new life with the God who knows us. And yet, like the Israelites, we are tempted, sorely tempted to turn back. Continuing on in verse 9, now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? How can you turn back? Having tasted real freedom, how can you turn back again to slavery? How can you go back? Well, it's because there's a comfort in what we know, isn't there? There's a comfort in our old habits and our old addictions and our, in our old ways of life that even if we know them to be bitter, even if we know they lead to slavery, we also know that in the short term, they work. Right In the short term, they make us feel a little bit better. They make us feel a little less lonely or a little less empty or a little less bored or whatever it is. That there's something about those old idols, those old addictions, 
that do draw us back to try to find life there. And they morph and they change. Right? The Galatians, interestingly enough, they were saved from, from pagan polytheism, right? They were saved by worship, they were saved from a life of worshiping many other gods. But if you remember, what they're being tempted back into is not to go back to worshiping many gods. It's by these people who are trying to tell them that to be saved, they have to keep the Jewish law. They have to be circumcised, they have to uh, observe. Uh, kosher laws on eating and drinking. They have to start to observe the Jewish high holy days. And on the one hand, those look like two different ways of life, right? Committing bloody sacrifices to a pagan pantheon seems very different than living a life of faithfulness to Israel's God through the keeping of the law. But what Paul's saying is that both of those paths lead them just as much to slavery. That that attempt to control and to manipulate God through your sacrifices, through your works, through your efforts, both of them are different, uh, different species within the same genus, right? They're, they're different, uh, they're different in, in kind, but not in type. That it's going back to that old slavery, that old way of life. And friends, there's not one of us who in this life isn't tempted uh, to relieve our struggle by going back, uh, back to our old idols, back uh, to our old addictions, right? If you have struggled with addiction or if you have loved an addict, you know the ever-constant threat of relapse, right? You know how, how fragile sobriety feels to us, that it feels like it's here right now, but each one of us is only a moment of weakness, a moment of foolishness away from running right back into it, right? A moment of feeling a little bit too empty, a little bit too lonely, a little bit too flat, and going back into that old way of life. Sobriety is a fragile thing. And if you've loved an addict or walked with them through that, or if you've known that in your own life, you have some window into how God feels about all of us all the time, right? That all of us are a moment away from relapse. And it may not be relapse back into drug or alcohol. It might be back into a relapse of defining your identity through power, through money, through wealth, through comfort, through sexuality. Right there, John Calvin said that our hearts are a factory of idols. Right, that our hearts are continually producing new things to worship. If it's not our old thing, we'll try a new thing. Which makes sobriety all that much harder. Right? It's not as simple as saying, well, stay away from bars, stay away from liquor stores, because you can't stay away from your own heart. You can't stay away from the idol factory inside of you that's constantly leading you to new ways to wander away from God. And so life in the wilderness, life in the middle is hard because we're constantly tempted to turn around and to go back to fall back into those old ways, those old places, those old idolatries. It's the middle of the story uh, that's so terribly hard. Right? Sometimes we will talk about our salvation in Christ. Uh, you've, you've heard me talk about it. We'll use the language of the already and the not yet. Right? We're already just as loved, just as forgiven, just as set free as you will ever be because of what Jesus has already done in his death and resurrection and ascension, you are already saved. 
But there's a not yet aspect to it too, isn't there? There's a seeking after what we don't have yet, right? The fullness of our life in Christ, the remaking of our world, the final freedom from sin, the consummation of the kingdom. And between the already and the not yet is the right now. And the right now is hard. The right now makes it hard to believe that the already really happened, right? That Jesus really lived and really died and really rose from the dead with you in mind, with his kingdom in his, uh, in his eyes, right? It makes the already hard to, hard to really trust in and it makes the not yet feel like an eternity away and like it's wishful thinking. Because when we struggle in the middle, we lose track of the story, we lose track of what God's doing in our lives. What once seems so real to us can start to feel so hazy and so unreliable. And in that, here's the good news. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. The good news, friends, is that Christ is being formed in you. You are being made new. You are being remade in the image of Jesus. Paul uses in this passage some incredibly heartfelt language. This is a pastor who is brokenhearted over his people. He has, uh, at the beginning, he calls them his siblings, his brothers. Here, he calls them my dear little children, right? He says that I am in the anguish of childbirth over you. Free marital advice for you guys out there. You should never say, hey, now I know what it's like to go through childbirth, right? There's not a, there's not, there's, hey, now that I've gotten over this flu, honey, now I know what it was like for you. Right now, now I, no, we don't know. Right? That's, that, that, that's free advice. But Paul says here that the struggle that he is in for these people is like the struggle of childbirth. Paul, incidentally, a single man. Um, I am once again like I'm in the labor of childbirth. What is childbirth? Childbirth, uh, I have seen and heard and observed, is agony yielding to joy. Right? If the agony didn't eventually yield to joy, nobody would ever have more than one child. But at some point, the joy of new life, the joy of what has happened, makes the suffering and the agony as deep as it is worth it. And Paul's here saying, that's what it's like trying to be your pastor. Paul's words, not mine. This is what it's like <laughs> trying to be your pastor as I am laboring over you and it is breaking my heart and it's, it's, it's wounding my body, but it is, it is in the hope that Christ is being formed in you. Friends, the hardest part of life, the hardest part, I'll speak for myself, the hardest part of my life is how unlike Christ I am. Right? The hardest part of this life, it's not what happens to me, Right? It's not how I, how I struggle or suffer or the way that other people wound me. It's my fears and my anxieties and my lack of belief and my lack of love. The way that I, the way that I hurt even those closest to me, the ways that even my, my attempts at love are tainted by pride and selfishness and arrogance and anger. Right? There, there is no sorrow in this life that breaks your heart if you let it like just how unlike Jesus you are. 
how partial your trust in God is, how failing your love towards others is. The sorrow of our lives is how unlike Jesus we are. And what's caused Paul this agony is he's, he's living in how unlike Christ the Galatian church is. How their faith is failing, how they're wandering back, how they're failing one another. And that truly is the hardest part of pastoring. Right? I remember uh, Houston, my son, one day asked me, Dad, what's it like to be a pastor? I was like, man, where do you want to start and how do you explain it to a nine-year-old? Like, it is high highs. It is, I get to be a part of your lives in some of the most beautiful places, right? There's, there's things I get to do as a pastor that you wouldn't trade for a million bucks. Being with, standing with couples in their marriage and seeing how they look at each other, uh, walking into the hospital at the birth of a child. There's, there are moments of, of immense beauty in the pastoral life. But there's also the sorrow of you're not only affected by your own lack of Christ-likeness, but you shepherd other, you walk with other people uh, through the wreckage of their own failures of faith, failures of love, struggles with doubt, relapses into addiction. You wrestle with all of it. You feel every bit of it. Every tear that's shed by the church, you feel. And so it is good news, friends, that Paul says this, I'm in the labor of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Right, He doesn't say, does he, I'm in the labor of childbirth in hopes that maybe Jesus will be formed in you one day. He doesn't say, I'm in the labor of childbirth and I hope it all works out, but I'm not sure it's going to. He says, no, 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 Jesus will be formed in you. One day your life will be free from sin. You will perfectly see Jesus and all of his truth and beauty and goodness and you will perfectly display that in your life. You will love God with a heart unhindered by sin. You will love your neighbors truly as yourself. You will be remade in the image of Jesus. The Apostle John tells us one thing that we know is when we see him, we will be like him. Right? When we see Jesus on that day, we will be just like him, free from sin, free from doubt, free from decay. The only thing that's at question is how much you will come to be remade in his image in this life, day by day, week by week. God is doing his work in you. Why is Paul weeping these tears over these people? Because he's addressing them and he's addressing us in the central tension of the life of faith. Right? We live every day torn between these two things being transformed and remade in the image of Jesus, or going back to the temporary relief of our old gods. Right? When you wake up tomorrow, that is the story that you wake up in. Will I, will I set my heart on being made new in the image of Jesus, even if it means suffering, even if it means sorrow, even if it means struggle, or will I escape that struggle, escape that suffering by going back to my old addictions, to my old gods. And Paul, like a pastor, weeping over them is saying, cling to Jesus. Don't go back. I know they seem like they offer life, but it's only slavery. Jesus is remaking you. Hold on to him. There's a story in Philadelphia uh, in 2017, a couple of years ago. 
a group of nonprofit organizations led by Temple University uh, set about to solving an odd problem. Uh, they came to realize that in the uh, public school system of Philadelphia, there were over a thousand instruments that were broken beyond being able to be used. So the music programs at many of these Philadelphia schools had had to go inactive because they couldn't afford to replace the instruments and they couldn't afford to fix the instruments. And so uh, children went without music. And so this group of, of nonprofits came together to try to solve this problem and to repair over a thousand instruments. They put these broken instruments up for auction. You could pay for a violin to be restrung. You could pay for an oboe to be put back together. You could sponsor an instrument. And then the, the main thing that they did as a fundraiser is that free of charge, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, composer David Lang composed a symphony. And they sold tickets to come to this symphony. And the, the symphony was called the Symphony for a Broken Orchestra. And he, what he had done, it was, it was amazing. He'd sent people out to listen to these out-of-tune, broken instruments and to learn the unique sounds that each broken violin or cracked flute could make. And then he actually composed a piece of music that only sounded right played through broken instruments. He played a piece of music that sounded best when played through broken instruments, a symphony for a broken orchestra. And people bought the tickets and they came and then the next day they put the instruments on a truck and sent them out to their places to be repaired. The symphony for a broken orchestra. Friends, the symphony of Jesus, the sacred symphony of Jesus' music can only be played by a broken orchestra. It can only be played through broken instruments. Instruments that recognize how deeply flawed and suffering and struggling we are how fragile our faithfulness and sobriety really is. It's a symphony for broken instruments. But the instruments will be made new. You will be retuned. You will be remade so that your symphony, the symphony of Jesus' church, will play a song that stretches out around the world and throughout eternity of worship to our God. We are a broken orchestra conducted by Jesus to play his song to a world that's starved for beauty. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.